0: Hey, y'all. I'm Gretchen Purser, and this is The Mess is Mine, the podcast where we talk about religion and politics and all the other stuff that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, y'all. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I'm really grateful for your time. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, if you have a chance to give a rating, uh, that will really help us get new subscribers. So thanks a bunch. So I know I said next time I was going to talk about the January 6th committee. Uh, but I'm going to wait till there's a little bit more to, to report. And honestly, given everything that's going on right now, I think it is a good time to do a little Afghanistan 101. So are the top lines, not a deep dive, but I think it's important for us to understand a little bit of history to figure out how we got to this particular what-the-what what place in history where we find ourselves today. I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about growing up evangelical in the Bible Belt and how that ties in with Afghanistan. I'm going to give you some pushbacks, because I always do— And I'm gonna try to keep it light, but this is some heavy stuff, so bear with me. So a long, long time ago in a land far away, long before Toby Keith ever sang about putting a boot in somebody's ass, There were these people, and they were about to get conquered. They were in for a whole lot of conquerings. Their first conquering happened in 500 B.C. by the Babylonians. Um, Then you have Alex the Great, conquers them in 329. Then Genghis Khan, that lovely dude, comes around in the 13th century. By the 19th century, the British were trying to annex them, so they just being conquered time after time after time. And so, you know, finally, they, they form some independence. They get a king. Things get a little bit better. But then here come the Soviets, and they want to, there's a, there's a coup. They want them to be communists. And um, in 1979, the Soviets and Afghanistan went to war. So in the 1980s, we got involved because we wanted to help squash communism. So what happened during the Reagan administration is that we funded this group called the Mujahideen. If you never saw Charlie Wilson's War, I highly recommend you watch it. It's it's Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts. It's a good movie, but it's also really instructive of how these covert operations worked and kind of what all went on over there. So it's really a fascinating story. Here's the gist. So these covert operations we funded got money and weapons in the hands of the militias. Somebody who gained a tremendous amount of power and prominence through his militia work was a guy you've heard of before. A guy by the name of Osama bin Laden. See where I'm going here? So this all ties together. So after a 10-year war, the Soviets are defeated and they leave. But what the Afghanistan people are left with is sort of a weaker version of the communist government. But the kicker is they've also got these strong warlords that have risen out of the militias, and they go on to form a couple of groups called the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Didn't hear much from either of these guys or these groups during the, the Bush one years. But if you move to the Clinton years, uh, that's when al-Qaeda started bombing some of our embassies overseas, I think in Africa. And then Clinton shot some missiles and tried to kill Osama bin Laden, but missed him. Kind of poked the bear, as it were. And Osama bin Laden uh, really hated America. He hated everything we stood for, ironically, because <laughs> we kind of gave him his start. Then comes Bush two. We all know what happened on nine eleven. President Bush demanded that the Taliban turn over Osama bin Laden. Of course, they refused, so then we, we went in looking for him in 2001. By 2005, you know, they were having elections, and women and children were being educated, and there had been great gains in humanitarianism. And, you know, some people believed it was time for us to start transitioning and figuring out a way to let the Afghani people have their own democracy and to get out of the way, but nobody could figure out how. And then here comes Barack Obama, and even though like a third of the country believed he was a Muslim, he was the president who actually found and killed Osama bin Laden. And they did actually start the process of trying to hand over the military from the U.S. and our allies to the Afghani people, and by 2014 was trying to figure out a way to get out of there. I say this because we've been trying to figure this out for a while, and for those of you who think this is really simple, I'm sure it is from your armchair perch, but it's not that simple. So if things aren't complicated enough, here comes Trump. So Trump sends in a surge of more troops, and then he drops some bonds, and then he just says, forget it, we're just going to make a deal. So he sits down with the Taliban. Psst, the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists, remember? <laughs> there are a lot of problems with this plan, but one of the biggest ones is that he basically is betting with somebody else's chips. So he says, okay, in exchange for y'all being nicer to us... And letting us get out of there unscathed, we're going to release 5,000 uh, Taliban prisoners in, that are in an Afghani prison. But the problem with that is nobody from the Afghani government was there to negotiate that deal. So he walks out, and the Afghani government's like, you can't make that deal. They're not your prisoners. They're our prisoners. So the deal fell apart, and the Taliban killed a bunch of people, and, you know, big shocker there. The thing that Trump did do, that he promised to do, was reduce the number of troops in Afghanistan from 13,000. He took it all the way down to 2,500. He did it right before he left office, and we all know he never intended to leave office, so I'm not sure what the the game plan was. I would guess that there wasn't one, only because he's not known to have a—he's not exactly a long-range plan kind of guy. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. But just like anything else, starting something is easy. It's the finishing part that's hard. So, on one hand, yeah, he drew the troops down. The flip side of that is, put it in football terms— It's like you started with 11 guys on defense, and now you have two and a half. So here comes Joe Biden, and his job is to get everybody out of there, but he's got less troops to do it with. I happen to believe that no president is all good or all bad, and they all get some things right, and they all get some things wrong. This is going to be way up there on the list of things that Joe Biden got wrong. I mean, everything from the timeline to the logistics to the communication to the optics to his stance, his lack of contrition, lack of compassion, it's been awful. You know, when we're all watching people fall off of the wings of airplanes because they're so desperate to get out of that country, the only acceptable response is compassion. And he failed. He sounded way more like Donald Trump than he did like Joe Biden. This isn't like talking to a bunch of junior high kids about who left a mess in the basement. When, when mistakes are made, you know, we expect our president to own it. But we can't be the country where never again does any politician ever admit to a mistake. That's, that's a bad precedent and we need to break it. You know, there were five to six presidents involved in this shit show over the years. So it's not all Biden's fault. But Biden is the president now. And this part is his responsibility. And that responsibility extends well beyond getting the Americans out of there. It extends to our Afghani friends and partners who who spied for us and translated for us and helped us and trusted us that we would take care of them. We also owe it to the soldiers and the families of soldiers who lost their lives over there, lost their limbs over there. We owe it to them to keep our word. We owe it to them to never let them feel like this was in vain. This was not in vain. Thousands and thousands of women and children had better lives because we were there, and we got rid of some very bad guys in the process. The world is a safer place without Osama bin Laden. Full stop. And democracy is great, but the reason that nation-building doesn't usually work is because we're trying to take democracy into places where it doesn't organically grow. So for thousands of years, Afghanis have been broken into tribes. They're not a nation like we think of when we think of a regular nation. And their allegiance is to their tribe, not to democracy, not to their country. So it's different. And you know what? (laughs) Now that I say that, maybe we're not so different after all. America's got our own tribes that we need to contend with, don't we? So this is a good segue to talk about our religious tribes and their feelings about refugees. So I don't want to bog you all down with too many facts and figures, so I'll put this ch- these charts and this data on my website so you can take a better look. But two different points. Number one is a Pew Research poll that does not bode well for my white evangelical people. i got a bad feeling about this. 68% of white evangelicals believe that America has no responsibility to house refugees. That is 25 points higher than the national average. This is why we can't have nice things. And hold up there, Catholics, you're not off the hook yet. So the other data point I'm looking at is it's broken down by religious belief. So it is white evangelical, white Protestant, black Protestant, white Catholic, and atheist. It's trying to get a measurement of religious people in America on refugees and their general opinion about refugees. And it says, you know, it's questions like um, refugees threaten traditional American values. uh, Refugees from the Middle East pose a terrorist threat, things like that. The thing that kind of breaks my heart is that the highest negative reaction to refugee assistance comes from white evangelicals across the board. I mean, as high as 70 percent in some categories, two to three times higher than any other category, except for white Catholics who come in second. Let's turn it upside down. Do you want to guess what group of people was the most accepting of refugees? This isn't fair to the Jewish people, because I think they would have ranked pretty well on this. But the most hospitable to refugees of this group tested were the atheists also known as the godless heathens. Y'all remember Luke 10, right? The story of the Good Samaritan? Well, in this particular application, it would appear that the people that are taking Jesus seriously when he says, go care for others and be the hands and feet of Christ on earth, that would not be the Christians. It would be the atheists. Does that that seem a little off to y'all? Does that bother anybody? It explains a lot, though, like why Tucker Carlson says things like this. history is any guide, and it's always a guide... We will see many refugees from Afghanistan resettle in our country in coming months, probably in your neighborhood. And over the next decade, that number may swell to the millions. So first we invade and then we're invaded. It is always the same. So I know plenty of evangelicals who don't agree with this. And so if you don't, then good. But if you do, you might want to take a a second look at what exactly it is you're pledging your loyalty to, because I'm pretty sure it's not the Bible, and I'm pretty confident it's not Jesus. Y'all know Matthew 25, you know, when Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was homeless and you turned me away. And they said, Lord, Lord, when do we turn you away? When do we do these things? And he said, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Y'all remember that verse? I know you do. You could quote it better than I can. So these red letter texts are pretty fundamental. <laughs> See what I did there? They're a foundation for evangelicals. I mean, kids like me, we grew up playing Bible bowl, like who could find the verse the fastest in their Bible. Not so I know y'all know the verses. It's just that you're not following them. We know we're supposed to take care of people in need. If the Afghanis don't count as people in need when somebody's about to murder their kids and chop their heads off, who does qualify? I think the question is, why are white evangelicals so resistant to helping refugees? And honestly, I think it's because we've been conditioned against compassion. And I know I'm going to get some blowback here, but if you all just bear with me, I'll try to explain what I mean. So I read and follow this guy named Charlie Sykes, who uh, writes for The Bulwark, and he had quoted um, Diana Butler Bass, who is a church historian and scholar. I've read some of her books. She's really brilliant. And she had given a quote a couple years ago on this very topic. She said, An easy answer is a secularization of the white evangelical community and how it functions as an arm of the Republican Party, taking talking points and marching orders from the people who have the loudest voices in the party. But then Charlie went on and explained this new phrase, which I'd not heard before, which is Christianism. So it's not Christianity, it's Christianism, which is subscribing to calling yourself a Christian, but not having those those principles or those guiding principles. So if you're, if you're more concerned with justice and obedience and judgment than you are mercy, grace, and forgiveness, maybe you're a Christianist, not a Christian. It's unwavering fundamentalist certainty. The reason I include that stuff today is because I think they're both right. I think that Christianism is a thing, and I think it's a thing because the Christian right successfully tied evangelicals around the axle of the Republican Party, and they're so tightly woven together now you really can't untangle them. And I happen to know this because I was there and I helped him do it. And we used all of the dog whistles and buzzwords that we needed to use to convince Christians that they needed to be Republicans. We talked about things like the, the homosexual agenda and religious persecution and crime in cities. Dog whistle. Welfare queens. You know, all the things that we needed to talk about to make these people feel persecuted, to make them feel like they had to be a Republican, even if the Republican candidate didn't really represent their values. As long as somebody's pro-life, you basically could run Genghis Khan and they would overlook everything else. Kind of explains a lot. I mean, you know, looking back, it's astounding to me that we saw no irony whatsoever in being pro-life and pro-gun and pro-private prison and pro-death penalty. You know, nobody ever called us out on the pro-life part of that, which is amazing to me. Um, And the other thing that is amazing to me is how genius it was to get a group of people that are conditioned to not ask questions and that are conditioned to follow. Think about it this way. It's incompatible to be a fundamentalist if you are a critical thinker or a skeptic. Because you're constantly going to doubt and push the envelope and ask questions. If you're not doing that, you're a prime candidate. You're a prime target to be co-opted into a movement. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, it happens all the time, whether the religion is Christianity or Islam, whether it's September 11th or January 6th, it's extreme fundamentalism that's the problem. I could be wrong, but I don't think there were a ton of Episcopalians storming the Capitol on January 6th. Can you imagine their demands would be like, pardon me, would you have any gray poupon? Sorry, Episcopalians, I just needed a little bit of levity. <laughs> anyway, as I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, lots of the evangelical churches are still very patriarchal, and a lot of the pastors have a tremendous amount of power, often unchecked power, which is always a dangerous thing. A lot of them sound like this guy. Here. I don't care what fraudulent fake Joe Biden says. I don't care what Planned Parenthood says. I don't care what Chris Cromo says. I don't care what Gavin Newsom says. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi and her insurrectionist nonsense has to say. You better wake up, church. You better wake up. They hate us. We are speed bumps to the deep state on the road to their progressive communism. I live by what I say, and I will die by what I say if I have to. So, y'all, this is real, and there's a lot more guys just like this than you realize. So if you ever wonder why so many evangelicals are unswayed by reason and unmoved by fact, why they fear the government more than they fear a virus that's killed millions of people worldwide, look no further, because this is real and it's not even all that rare. And there's absolutely nothing Christlike or remotely compassionate about this brand of evangelicalism. Okay, now I feel like I need a shower. All right, so now I'm going to take you to someplace in the mid-1970s, small-town Oklahoma seen as Sunday school class. So I was a little kid when I realized that the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So my Sunday school teacher, I don't know what she was thinking because it was sort of inappropriate for tiny kids who should have been just putting like felt animals on the the Noah's Ark uh, felt board. And I want to say maybe somebody's grandparent died. So we were talking about heaven and our teacher said, because so-and-so's grandma was a Christian, she's in heaven. And I said, well, what if she wasn't a Christian? Because I caught that little caveat. And she said, well, if you're not a Christian, then you go to hell. And I was like, everybody? And she said, yeah, everybody. And I said, well, what about if somebody was born? You know, what about somebody who didn't have the opportunity to become a Christian? And she said, it doesn't matter. They're going to hell. And I started getting a little, I said, well, that's not fair. You know, what, what are we supposed to do about this? This is not right. It just didn't sit right in my little five or six year old brain or whatever. And she said, you know, typical evangelical answer, God, God's ways are not our ways. We are not supposed to understand it. And I said, how are they going to find out about Jesus? And she said, that's your job. That's our job. Christians are supposed to go out all around the world and tell everyone about Jesus before they die, basically, before they get like eaten by a shark or hit by by a train or or whatever, fall in a volcano, depending on where you live. I mean, when your view of the world is shaped by Saturday morning cartoons, there are a myriad of ways you can meet your demise, like maybe even having an anvil fall on your head. Anyway, back to the story. And I think she could see that she scared me a little bit because I was pretty panicked at this point. And she said, don't worry, kind of patted me on the head. God is in control. God is in control. Okay, so then I sit there through church then after, after this, and I'm looking around at all these grown ups and nobody seems panicky, and nobody seems worried that millions of people are going to burn in hell if we don't get out of this sanctuary right now and go tell them about Jesus. But when the service was over, nobody was worried about running to tell people about Jesus. They were running to beat the Methodists and the Presbyterians to the restaurant for lunch. So my little person takeaway was this, mind your own biscuits, God's in control, just keep yourself out of hell and stop worrying about everybody else. It's not your problem. It's something that I call God is in controlism. It's very passive. It's, it's, there's nothing nefarious about it. And believing that God is in control of everything just absolves you of the responsibility for, you know, pretty much everything. And that's okay. It's just not compassion. I mean, not to me anyway. And, you know, I could be wrong. It happens all the time. All right, so we're going to go into some pushbacks real quick. Pushback number one. If people in your circle are blaming this all on Biden or all on George Bush, just tell them, just back up a minute, okay? You know, people like certain and they like simple. And the problem is that life usually isn't either. So if you find yourself around people that are absolutely certain about something, maybe take everything they say with a giant shaker of salt. Pushback number two. This is the longest war we ever had. Thousands of Americans sacrificed for what we did over there, and their sacrifice is not in vain. Pushback number three, if you hear any of your friends, especially Christian friends, say things that are not pro-refugee and sound a little bit xenophobic or maybe a little bit racist, just remind them that Jesus was not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy from Kansas. And number four, call the White House, 202-456-1111. Tell President Biden you expect him to defend and protect those Afghani people that put their trust in us. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you all for listening. I really do appreciate it. Um, I know it's a little bit long this time, but I did cover the entire history of Afghanistan and my childhood in one podcast. Maybe I should pay you. Maybe you're my therapist. Last but not least, it's my father-in-law's 81st birthday. So happy birthday, Chuck. Have a great week. Talk to you next time.